creatures, great and small. The season finale on Masterpiece. Tonight, a decade after Linsanity electrified New York, how former native Jeremy Lin is still inspiring Asian Americans amid rising violence against the AAPI community. Then Pulitzer Prize winning author John Meacham's fresh look at President Lincoln and his essential lessons for saving a divided union. Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gansconi Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and by and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. The Knicks. Now, over the past 20 years, the team has given New York sports fans few reasons to celebrate. However, in 2012, for a few brief weeks, New Yorkers and basketball fans across the world had the chance to experience one of the most exciting and improbable stretches in the history of sports, Linsanity. Now, at the time, Jeremy Lin was an unknown, undrafted Asian Harvard graduate who worked his way into the starting lineup of the New York Knicks and immediately started leading the team in scoring and, more importantly, to victories. Though Lin's sanity was short-lived, the phenomenon swept the world and inspired many to dream, particularly those of Asian descent. Now, a new documentary titled 38 at the Garden is out on HBO Max and tells the story of Linsanity and the impact it had on Asian Americans. Here's a quick preview. While I'm watching this live, I'm like, this cannot be happening. This cannot be happening. I think it just blew all of our minds that we would see someone that looked like my cousin dominate on an NBA court. It's the most impossible thing I think I've ever witnessed in my life. When most Americans think about Asians, they think about dry cleaners, they think about IT guy. Small, passive, diminutive, unathletic. The stereotyping, the derision are so rampant. You don't think no Asian kid that's this size is gonna be dunking. This is who I am, this is what I'm capable of. All you guys need to do is watch and see. This kid came out of nowhere and started balling like for real. It wasn't just Asian people talking about it. Everybody was talking about it. The Lakers came in with the idea that we're going to end this fairy tale. We're going to end it tonight. But Jeremy just kept making shots. He gave all y'all what y'all wanted to see. Is this the other plot of Space Jam? Like, whose superpowers did Jeremy Lin steal? Yo, this dude scored 38 points! At the Garden, at the Mecca. The biggest thing that Sandy brought was hope. It inspired people. The last few years, Asian Americans have just gotten beaten down. And when I think back on Lynn's sanity, I long to feel those moments of just pure joy and unity. This moment, it broke the matrix for us. 
And joining me now to discuss this new film is Frank Chi. Frank, of course, is the director of 38 at the Garden. Frank, welcome to Metro Focus. Thank you, Jenna. It's great to be here. So for anyone who might not remember the phenomenon that was, and if you don't remember, you clearly are not a Knicks fan. Uh, it was actually, as Jeremy describes in the film, a perfect storm, if you will, because the Knicks um, were Knicksing, for lack of a better description. They were doing their struggle thing, but Jeremy was also at a critical juncture in his career. And so I'm wondering if you could sort of explain for people who, again, might not remember what were these perfect forces that came together that allowed Lynn's sanity to happen? You know, a lot of it was the Knicks being very injury prone that year, right? And Jeremy was deep in the bench, right? He was a point guard, but there were like, I think three point guards in front of him. And when, I think it was Baron Davis who got hurt, um, they needed a point guard. And, you know, I think Asian Americans can relate to that story so hard because it was like we, we all have like this wall of stereotypes that surround us right and everybody's looking for an opportunity to break it or to have like a chance to show that like you're bigger than that and uh, th those those injuries i think really it, you know it's unfortunate that they happened but for jeremy it, it said to the coach all right you know what since we're 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 so down on our luck here let's go ahead and put the asian kid in the in the game and that's how he checked into the game against the nets right and, and we're all just looking for that opportunity to show that that we're good at what we love to do and when he checked into that game that was the game he scored 25 points the game the, the game that he thought that afterwards he would be cut from the team right and that mm -hmm. so that's a lot we explore that in the movie a lot um you know he ended up scoring 25 points and that's the first game of what we call that two-week stretch of linsanity well, now, one of the things that you mentioned is, of course, uh, and the film does focus on Jeremy's impact, but also his experience as one of the few uh, Asian players in the mm. NBA, American or not. Mm. And one of the things that I think a lot of people tend to think about sports is that it's a unifier. It's all about stats and averages. Well, Jeremy was a standout player in California when he was in high school. He attended Harvard, which for people might you know, it's, of course, the academic school, but it's also a Division One school. So he was a standout player and set records for Harvard's basketball team. And yet when it came to the NBA draft, it seems as if a lot of teams were like, meh. No, oh, I mean, it, I think every single thing that happened in his career leading up to checking into the Nets game sort of fit this pattern, right? How could you be California Player of the Year, win the California State Championship and get zero, zero recruitment offers? How could you be three-time all Ivy League, 18 points a game, and like in his words, killed it at the tryouts before the draft and not even get a whiff of interest, right? The only reason why he broke into the league is because Joe Lacob, who was who just bought the Warriors at the time, had seen Jeremy play when he was growing up because he played against Joe Lacob's son in high school basketball. So that's someone who's now looking at him through stereotypes, and it took something that that feels like when i say that out loud it sounds unbelievable because it sounds like a fluke right but for so many of these incredible stories where someone is just trying to prove their worth prove their value beyond what stereotypes try to define us as it takes a moment it takes a decision like that and we cover that in the movie as well but it has it was like this pattern I mean, if you read the, the pre-draft notes we, which you put in the movie they just i mean jeremy plays downhill he's a confident player Right, he demands the ball, but 
but these draft notes are like lacks confidence, constantly passing the shot, like the ball. Like if you saw him play, you know he isn't this. It's just somebody writing down Asian stereotypes on the page. And I think that's like the challenge that, that of course he went through, but I think for Asian Americans as a community, like we saw him almost as this symbol, as this avatar of our struggles, right? And when he, not only through that next game, but a couple games later when he scored 38 points at the Garden and did it on ESPN, did it in front of the whole world, we had this cathartic reaction to seeing the own, our own stereotypes in our own lives fall down, if only for a little bit, right? And I think that's one of the most important points we make in the movie too, and why we wanted to reevaluate and explore this again on the 10 year anniversary, which is to say like a lot of those stereotypes that we've been annoyed at our whole lives because they followed us around. In the past couple of years, they've suddenly been weaponized. And when they're weaponized, they turn into anti-Asian violence. And that's a really, really important piece of this story and why we chose to revisit it on the 10 year anniversary. You know, we, we always say to people involved in this project, like, what is it like to revisit our favorite Asian American memory during the worst time to be Asian American in recent history? That's what this feeling feels like. And that's, and that's the way Jeremy describes it too. And I think it's really important for us to sort of have that conversation about stereotypes, what it means when someone shatters those stereotypes on the world stage, and then today when those stereotypes have been weaponized. And if we can do that, then we've achieved the goal of this movie, which is to spark that kind of conversation. Well, speaking of uh, the stereotypes, um, one of the instances that seemed to be the most galvanizing for fans who were following uh, Lynn Sanity and Jeremy's um, just sort of rise and explosion in the NBA wasn't even the 38 at the Garden, which was impressive because let's not forget that was against the Kobe years Lakers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was later on at a game in Toronto where there was this infamous wave away. So can you sort of, for people who might not be basketball fans, um, can you sort of explain what it was that took place and why that was such a, um, just an impressive move on the part of a player to make that really sort of made him stand out in terms of confidence and dominance sure. on the court? So, as you said, we're in Toronto. The game is tied. It's the end of the game. And he's the point guard, right? Like, look, point guards are supposed to make plays. They're supposed to pass the shot. He chose not to pass the shot. He waved his teammates off. And he's at the top of the key. He's at that three-point line, actually. And he just waits. He just dribbles all out the clock. And at the buzzer, he takes the three. And he makes it. And the whole stadium goes crazy. This is not New York. This is Toronto. I mean, look, there are a lot of Asian folks in Toronto, we know, right? But like, I think everybody in the city was just watching this as a bigger than basketball moment because they're like, we've never seen anything like this. Who is this kid, right? So you didn't have to be Asian to realize that something very, very different and very, very special was, was happening. You know, I look, in the movie, we cover this extensively. Um, and I have been thinking about Linsanity for a decade, right? I thought I had thought through every angle, but... Hasan Minaj, the comedian, is in the movie. And the way he talks about it, during the interview, even, I, it sort of blew my mind because I was like, he, he described that as an act of dignity. He was like, you know, if you are prepared to take the shot, you're the NBA, you know you can play, you know you can shoot. Why should you pass the ball up? Why can't you take the ball? Why can't you take the game-winning shot, the potential 
game-winning shot. You have the confidence and you have the skill and you have the drive to do it. Why can't you do it? And I think that's a question a lot of Asian Americans ask, or just Asian people in Western society in general. We ask ourselves, like, like, why are we constantly the supporting character? Why are we never the main character? Why are we never the protagonist? And in that moment, during the wave off, it felt like Asian people could finally be the protagonist in this society. And I, look, I always felt that way, but I had never had someone say it out loud to me that way until Hudson did it for the movie. And if you watch the social media reactions from people since the movie came out last week, that has been the moment that people talk about the most, that shot, that wave off, and they relate it to their own lives in exactly the same way. Of course, that that moment of main character energy. Um, right. I'm wondering, we have about a minute left, but if you could just sort of tell me what you see the impact was, because as you mentioned, you didn't have to be Asian American to get caught up in well, insanity. Yeah, you know, I think that's part of the underdog story and why it resonates so much in America, right? You don't, you just have to be a little different to resonate with Jeremy and with insanity in general. And that's why I think, I mean, if you, again, like the, the reactions to 38 of the Garden have been sort of everywhere. Like if you want to feel like, you know, we all have stereotypes that follow us into a meeting, that follow us down the street, that follow us into a party. Every single, they, they might be different than, and for many people it might be compounded, right? But everybody knows what the stereotypes that they have to confront when they walk into a place where people don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And if you can feel that, if you felt that at any point in your life, you're gonna be able to relate to 30 of the garden, I promise that. All right, well, uh, Frank, first of all, thank you so much for taking Knicks fans like myself back <laughs> to one of the most glorious times. Um, here's hoping that there's glory again at the garden, but uh, thank you so much for the film. I and I hope. think, <laughs> I <have hope. laughs> as you mentioned, it's, it's important to re-examine, I think, not only what that was in terms of sports, but what that was in terms of America and the relations for Asian Americans. So thank you for the film. Thank you, Jenna, it's great to be here. Absolutely. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. For more than a century and a half, Abraham Lincoln has been viewed as a role model for the American presidency. The man who ended slavery and saved the union is often held up as a paragon of moral rectitude, a revered and almost saint-like figure. But a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian John Meacham reveals a more complex and nuanced picture of Lincoln. His book, titled And There Was Light, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle, takes a fresh look at how Lincoln navigated the political turmoil of his day and shows how his presidency is especially relevant today. In the words of fellow scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr., John Meacham's book gives us, quote, a Lincoln for our time. And we're delighted that John Meacham joins us now to talk about this book. John, welcome. Good to see you again. Thanks, Jack. So let me start with the idea of a Lincoln book. And we know there have been a lot of a lot of books that have been written that have taken a look at the man. Uh, why did you decide that you wanted to do Lincoln and why did you want to do it now? It's a little bit like the line in Casablanca about there, you, they were in a desert, but I was misinformed. I didn't know there were all these books about, about Lincoln. <laughs> uh, I think Lincoln is a little like Mount Everest uh, for those of us who uh, toil in the biographical vineyards. I think it's uh, a task to, to be undertaken uh, advisedly and carefully. 
But I wanted to answer the question, not of how he did what he did, but why? Because democracy has not been at as great a risk since his time than it is for ours. And so what was it about him and his era and those who worked in concert with him, as well as those who opposed him? What do those elements tell us about how do you take a democracy from crisis to a place where the pursuit of justice is in fact sacrosanct and can unfold? I got to tell you, I've read an awful lot of the, the Lincoln biographies. This one was marvelous. It is clearly in the top echelon for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of them is, is that you manage to meld here a deeply personal and intimate view of Abraham Lincoln, but it's surrounded by the political turmoil and the politics and decision decisions of his time. Let me start with the, the personal, if I can. If you ask people nowadays, and probably if you ask students this, they would, they would say Abraham Lincoln, a towering, uh, probably figuratively and literally, a towering, towering heroic figure. But you talk about him, and I've seen you use the words fallen, fragile, um, imperfect. Talk a little bit more about, about the notion of how, how we think of Lincoln and the reality of Lincoln. He's, he was a man before he was a monument. He is a figure who had good days and bad days, lost two children, had a difficult at best marriage, suffered from bouts of depression, was entirely self-educated, did not believe that his birth, or at least that of his, uh, some of members of his family had been legitimate. So he lived with a kind of uncertainty about his identity in the world. And in that sense, you have this remarkably human figure who emerges in the middle of the 19th century as the key arbiter of whether democracy will long endure not just in America, but globally. And what was the definition of human liberty? And so I, I'm, I'm appreciative of what you said, because to see a human figure buffeted by history is in fact the biographical enterprise. He didn't know how it was gonna turn out. We do, but he didn't. And I, I picked sort of three key inflection points. Uh, one was the compromise that was on the table after he won the presidency. And William Seward, who thought he should be president, and a lot of other people did too, uh, thought he should take this deal offered by the senator from Kentucky, totally rational in American raw political terms. What was America but an exercise in compromise? Uh, Lincoln's hero was Henry Clay. And Henry Clay had built these compromises. But they had not resolved the problem because the problem could not be managed. The problem of slavery was not something that you could tweak. It had to disappear. And Lincoln had this moral insight that slavery was wrong. And the only thing he would really be stark about, one of the few things he would be stark about in talking about the white South was they believe slavery is right and should perpetu be perpetuated. We believe it is wrong and should end. And once that issue is defined, then 
everything else falls into its proper place. Another moment where he could have decided uh, to do something else was right when he walked into what was what is now the Lincoln bedroom. There was no Oval Office then. The first thing he deals with when he walks into that room on the second floor of the White House, which had, uh, one of his aides said the White House in those days had the air of an old and unsuccessful hotel, was <laughs> Sumter. Uh, and Winfield Scott and Seward again were not sure that Sumter was worth civil war. Lincoln believed it was. And then in 1864, he's running for re-election. People want him to jettison emancipation, and he won't do it. So if he were a, if he were solely a political creature, he would have made different decisions in those moments. Where did that, that moral certainty, that moral compass, uh, again, he, he comes from a rough and tumble beginning that probably didn't necessarily lend itself to that notion, that overarching notion of honesty. Where did it come from in his life? He grew up the child of parents who belonged to anti-slavery Baptist denominations in Kentucky and Indiana, which is a remarkable thing to note, because how many anti-slavery Baptists could there have been in Kentucky as the 18th became the 19th century? It, it wasn't overwhelming. Uh, there was an intellectual and theological line from that church world back to William Clarkson and William Wilberforce in uh, Thomas Clarkson, sorry, uh, in England. And you had for Lincoln, he said, I am naturally anti-slavery. I do not remember when I did not so think and feel. And he was very precise because he was a lawyer with his words. Naturally means from birth. So there was the theological element that slavery was wrong. It's also reported that he saw uh, chain gangs of enslaved persons being taken along the Cumberland Road. He saw, we believe, slave markets in New Orleans and, and in lower parts of the Mississippi, and is reputed to have said very early on that if ever I get a chance to hit at slavery, I'm going to hit it hard. And so it was a case where he saw a wrong, declared it, didn't race toward the abolitionist ranks. Let's be careful. Let's be clear. I, I, I am not deifying Abraham Lincoln here. I'm just pointing out that he was a sinner who managed to do some saintly things. And I think that's the definition of a good life. Yeah. When you talk about him and, and this, and, and, and I think this, in many ways, some a good portion of the book explodes some myths. You know, you you would hear periodically that the Emancipation Proclamation was a, a, a matter of political expediency, and you've talked about the fact that from from his childhood he believed that. But was he also? I think you used the term a, a, a racial egalitarian right. in terms of no. race relations. No, he was look. He was not John Lewis or Martin Luther King in a stovepipe hat and a black Brooks Brothers suit. He was not. Uh, I want to be very clear about that. He was anti-slavery, but was not a forward-leaning abolitionist as he came to the White House. One of the most frustrating things that's frustrating about Lincoln and immensely frustrating about a lot of folks who look like me both then and now as a white Southerner is that he saw the Declaration of Independence as a guarantee of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He believed that applied to black Americans. That was not a widely held view in his political time. Stephen Douglas explicitly ran against it. 
and on that issue, those Illinois Senate races turned and Lincoln lost them. He, however, however, he did not see that if black Americans were included in the declaration, that they should then be afforded rights of citizenship and total social, political, civil equality. And it's one of those moments that makes you as a biographer want to reach back and grab him by the throat Mm -hmm. and shake him and say, why couldn't you see the full implications of your argument? But that's self-righteous of us to want to do that. There are going to be a lot of folks in the future who are going to reach back and want to grab us by the throat and ask why we screwed up so much that we screwed up. And I, I, I use that not to dismiss mm-hmm. the, the absolute centrality of, of this question. Lincoln's failure to fully embrace racial egalitarianism was an American tragedy. It is a tragedy that unfolds still. And I believe that part of the moral utility of history is to understand that even the folks who transcended their limitations to some extent in the past, if even they could get so much wrong, then we should look around and figure out what we're getting wrong and try to fix it before it's too late. Let me ask you, and that's a, I, I got about two minutes left, so a last question for you. There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about, but we'll do that another time. Um, we, I, I mentioned in the introduction, the quote from Henry Louis Gates Jr., and, and he says, this book provides us a Lincoln for our time. And you do talk about parallels and mirror images of Lincoln's time and ours. What, what, what do you think that's meant when you say a, a Lincoln for our time? I think it's that we don't look up at him adoringly. We look him in the eye. This is not an age of heroes. Uh, it doesn't do us much good. I'm not sure what Skip, uh, I don't want to put words in Skip's mouth. This is, right. this is me. Mm-hmm. Um, to solve the problems of our time, which are enormous and deep and persistent, is going to require learning from the past, not being overawed by it or seeing it as sweet, sentimental, and remote. And I think a Lincoln for our time is a Lincoln who got just enough right. Mm. Because I believe that part of the, one of the reasons to look back is again, not to look up adoringly or down condescendingly, but look Lincoln in the eye so that when we look in the mirror, we might see more clearly. And, and that's, a, I think, a wonderful way to encapsulate this book and what we need to do. Once again, the book is titled And There Was Light, a great quote from Frederick Douglass that you have in the beginning of the book there that people will find fascinating, Abraham Lincoln and the American Struggle. Uh, John Meacham, it's always a pleasure. Um, a marvelous book. Well done, as always. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. You take care. Thanks, Jack. Really appreciate it. Metro Focus is made possible by... Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Ganscuni Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, and by...
to 9 at 8 on the WNET Group Stations, on 13 Antiques Roadshow, on WLIW 21, The Mysterious Women of Masterpiece, on NJPBS, Nature, Wild Heart, on All Arts, Pavarotti, Pop Tenor, on World, Making Black America, on Create America's Test Kitchen, on 13 PBS Kids, Cyber Chase. Go to WNET.org slash watch for channel information. Finding Your Roots, Brian Cox. I wish my ma could be here to see this. And Viola Davis. You're uncovering the truth. I love this. Redemption on the Western Front. It's incredibly moving. And a grandfather's shocker. Isn't that interesting? You gotta bury your secrets. That's right. <laughs> Plus. He's my DNA cousin. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Wednesday night at 9 on WLIW 21. See this flower garden? There used to be a car sitting there, a car I didn't use and didn't want. So I donated it to public television, and they took care of everything. In addition to supporting my favorite programs, I earned a tax deduction. Turn something you don't need into something you really want. Contact the Vehicle Donation Program. On Masterpiece. You must be the new vet assistant we've been hearing all about. I'm Eva. An evacuee. She'll be safe for your show. Merry Christmas! There's another attempted raid over Glasgow. You'll be told if and when you need it. He really doesn't understand what he's getting himself into. It's not your choice to make. 